Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? There's no doubt about it. 2020 challenged us in ways no one could have expected. But the pandemic has also caused many to rethink what's possible. When we are faced with a collective crisis, that we can act in a, in a strong and a forceful way. And that is Canada's Environment and Climate Change Minister, Jonathan Wilkinson, back in July on what COVID had taught him. Since that interview at Waterfront Park in North Vancouver, we've heard from Canadians from coast to coast to coast about how climate change is affecting them. The water got up to about 17 feet high and uh, my whole basement was totally flooded in about four feet of water. I was absolutely devastated. We uh, keep losing more and more of our salmon stocks and I think our, our culture is not going to be passed on. The land is sort of disappearing on us and the sea level is rising and my balcony is like maybe like a few inches away from falling over because of the erosion. Now make no mistake, many are adapting, but the challenges remain. You know, I need a new roof on my house, so do I sacrifice a new roof on my house so that I can buy an EV? What do I give up in order to be able to make that, make that change? The reality is we're all affected by increased emissions and a warming climate, and a lot of you are worrying about the future. So what about my hopes and dreams? What about, you know, every kid on this planet's hopes and dreams? Our future looks so bleak. That anxiety, though, is tempered by the fact that change is possible. Individual action can make a difference. But there's widespread agreement that action must come from the top, requiring strength, leadership, and vision from the people elected to office. This week, we hear from the person in charge of Canada's climate portfolio. And I hadn't said this publicly before, so I'm it's not out sure now. I'm actually making this announcement <laughs> um, by a podcast, uh, which wasn't actually my intent. Stay with us. Jonathan Wilkinson is next with news he didn't expect to share. Throughout today's show, you'll hear the voices of politicians, analysts, and people affected by climate change as a backdrop to my conversation with Jonathan Wilkinson, who is, as you know, Canada's Minister of Environment and Climate Change. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. We are 10 months into a pandemic that no one saw coming at the start of this year. How challenging has it been to keep this other crisis, climate change, front and center? Well, I think it was certainly very challenging at the beginning when, uh, you know, we didn't really understand very well how this virus behaved, how it was transmitted. And I think everybody was essentially locked in their homes for the first few months. The focus of, I think, everybody and all governments was on trying to actually get into a position where we we got a better handle on both how to uh, address the, the virus, but also how to ensure that we were supporting Canadians through this uh, this pandemic. But uh, I think once we got beyond that initial phase, um, Canadians started to think a little bit more about the future and, and about once we got through the pandemic, 
you know, the, the crisis that loomed on the horizon, which is the crisis of climate change. And, you know, I, I do believe that Canadians expect that their governments can walk and chew gum at the same time, um, that we can think about how we can address uh, that looming crisis and, and also think about how we can set Canada up for economic success coming out of the pandemic uh, and moving forward. And that is really important, uh, both in terms of building back from the pandemic and some of the, the effects of it. But it's also really important in terms of thinking about where Canada positions itself in a world that is moving towards low carbon and that is moving to low carbon being the basis of, of competition in many spheres. Now, you've been a very busy man for the last couple of weeks. It seems like the, the end of the year was the time when, when you did decide as a government that you could walk and chew gum at the same time with all of these announcements. Um, so let me give you a chance to boast a little bit. What, what do you think has been the government's biggest accomplishment this year on climate change? Well, I think the biggest accomplishment on climate change was the plan that we announced on Friday. Canadians want to do more to fight climate change while building a stronger economy for our kids and grandkids. We need a plan that gets Canada ahead because without it, we'll fall behind. It is obviously coupled with the legislation, uh, the net zero by 2050 legislation we introduced a couple of weeks before that. But this is uh, the first time that Canada has a plan that is very detailed, um, that shows exactly how we will not only meet, but we will exceed the targets to which we have committed with our international partners. And it's a plan that's not just a, an environmental plan. It's a, it's a plan that's also an economic plan about how Canada can thrive in a low carbon future. So, you know, we announced it uh, just, just before the year end, but I can tell you I've been working on it for, for many months. Okay, I gave you your boast. Now <laughs> here comes the flip side. <laughs> what do you think has been your, your biggest failure or your frustration this year? Um, you know, I, 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 think, I think the biggest frustration probably is the same frustration that all Canadians share, uh, which is uh, doing a lot of things that we would have taken for granted has been much more difficult in an, in a world where we have to socially distance and wear masks and and uh, and do everything by Zoom. Um, I think that has made it more difficult at times to convene conversations that are really important conversations to uh, to have the face to face interaction that is I I believe really important in terms of building trust and and ensuring understanding. We have as everybody has, had to make changes in terms of how we've done that. But, um, but I think that's been the biggest challenge for me throughout the course of the year, as I know it has been for many Canadians. Let's talk about decarbonizing industry and transportation. We are announcing a big first step for hydrogen in Canada, a tool that will help us to reach net zero emissions by 2050, a tool that will lower our emissions, power our communities and transportation sectors, and move us to cleaner fuels and grow our economy. Your government is clearly pushing for hydrogen derived from natural gas and renewables. I'm just wondering why not go all in on the hydrogen that doesn't reward the oil and gas sector with subsidies? Well, I would say, uh, first of all, I mean, I, I do think there is a space for d debate and discussion about what we mean by subsidies. Uh, certainly, uh, Canada, alongside its G20 partners, has committed to phasing out fossil fuel subsidies. And those are things that incent the development and the production of fossil fuels. But I do not agree with folks who say that investments to reduce emissions um, associated with the oil and gas sector and other industrial sectors are subsidies. Those are not. Those are part of a responsible climate plan in a country that has a significant industrial <laughs> sectors that require decarbonization. 
And so, uh, so with respect to your, your specific question on hydrogen, I would say that people should be focusing on the issue at hand, and the issue is pollution. We need to focus on how we actually reduce and ultimately eliminate carbon pollution. And the source of the energy should not be the debate, it's actually the pollution. There are pathways with natural gas where you can actually extract the hydrogen in a very low carbon manner, not simply carbon capture and sequestration, but novel technologies that are being developed in Western Canada and elsewhere around the world about how you can continue to monetize value from the hydrogen that exists in, in a fossil fuel without carbon pollution. That source of energy, the blue hydrogen, at this stage anyway, is far more cost effective than green hydrogen. Now, that may change in the future, and certainly we need to do work to try to change the cost structure on the green hydrogen side. But, I mean, to be honest, it would be irresponsible for a country not to look at the most cost effective way to be able to produce energy that is non-carbon emitting. And, and that's, yeah. uh, that's why both blue and green hydrogen are important. And, and you know that many environmental groups would like you to just stick with green hydrogen entirely. But I'm wondering how much uh, politics are at the heart of this, of dealing with provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan, when you embrace this idea of so-called blue hydrogen. Well, no, I, I mean, certainly there are pathways for Alberta and Saskatchewan and British Columbia that are enabled by blue hydrogen. And I think that's important. It's not a responsible position for any federal government to say we don't care about a whole region of the country. You've got to look at pathways for uh, continued prosperity for all regions of the country. And those strategies are going to be different. But look, this debate on green and blue, I mean, I, I am more than happy to engage that conversation with the environmental community. At the end of the day, we should be focusing on how do we derive energy without carbon? I think it's pretty clear that if we want to move towards a low carbon economy and if we want to tackle um, the climate crisis, we need to be moving towards greener investments. So we need to be able to phase out these subsidies so that renewable energy and clean energy and clean technology can compete uh, and so that we can repurpose those investments for the really big investments we need to make uh, if we want to get our, our country on track. Can we just go back to this question about subsidies? You, I know you dispute um, the way it's being used, but the International Institute for Sustainable Development says by international standards, Canada spent $600 million on fossil fuel subsidies, investing in technology cleanup expansion. What do you say to that? Well, I say a couple of things. I mean, the federal government has committed to phase out fossil fuel subsidies. Provincial governments have not. Um, and some provincial governments continue to uh, to provide significant fossil fuel subsidies. I do think that that's something that uh, the populations that live in those provinces should engage that conversation with their governments. Certainly we have, and we are committed to phasing out uh, the fossil fuel subsidies that incent the development production of fossil fuels. But, the but I do not agree uh, with folks who say that, that enabling the rapid decarbonization of industry is a fossil fuel subsidy. The oil industry pollutes because it has to be replaced by renewable energy over time. And I'd stop giving to the oil industry, I'd stop giving them federal subsidies. Joseph Biden's incoming administration has been straightforward on its commitments. It says it will ban fossil fuel subsidies. Um, do we risk lagging behind the United States on this when there's an opportunity to lead? Oh, no, I don't think so. I think we're absolutely in lockstep with uh, President-elect Biden. Um, we've already made that commitment um, as part of the G20, and I'm, you know, I welcome the United States uh, moving in that direction. 
But but President-elect Biden has also talked about the importance of hydrogen and the importance of carbon capture and sequestration and the importance of technology evolution. So uh, I think, you know, we share a common view with President-elect Biden. And and I, I do believe that in certain sectors of the economy, like transportation, his election is going to make um, our ability to decarbonize uh, more quickly uh, a lot easier. In Alberta and Saskatchewan, we will capitalize on our natural gas sector to produce low emissions hydrogen with the help of world-leading carbon capture technologies. And in the process, lower the emissions of every drop of oil that we produce. Let's get to the plan that, that you announced. Um, this is also to the, to the point about carbon capture and subsidies. Um, you've made mention of carbon capture technologies with credits to fossil fuel companies for capturing carbon at the source of emissions. But one of the uses for that captured carbon is also what we call enhanced fuel recovery, which allows them to use captured carbon to extract more fossil fuels. Why does industry get credit for doing that? Well, the way in which, uh, so enhanced oil recovery is one application, at least in the short term, for uh, carbon capture and storage. In, in the long term, um, you're probably looking more at just straight carbon capture and storage. And in some technologies, um, that would be carbon capture from an industrial source. In, in others, it would be like what carbon engineering does, uh, carbon capture from air. But in the short term, um, enhanced oil recovery, when you're actually capturing carbon and you're using that to enhance oil recovery, you actually can end up and it depends on the formation that you're in, but you can end up actually with either carbon neutral fossil fuel or, or potentially a carbon negative cost of a fossil fuel. It obviously is something that will transition as we move through an energy transition to the point where we're not using oil and gas in, in our cars, in our homes. We are using hydrogen and electricity. But that, doesn't that delay the transition to getting off fossil fuels? I, I don't think so. People have to step back a little bit. So think about our transportation system. Um, in Canada right now, uh, we have done a lot of work to build out a, uh, an infrastructure for uh, electric and in British Columbia hydrogen vehicles. Um, we have uh, provided incentives to try to buy down the cost difference that exists presently um, between zero emission vehicles and internal combustion engines, which, which will go away over time. But right now, 3% of the vehicle fleet in, uh, in uh, Canada is zero-emission vehicles. And 97% uses oil or uses gasoline. Um, that will need to change over time, and we need to move down through various steps. Our target is 100% of new vehicle sales by 2040 will be zero-emission vehicles. But that means that there will be cars on the road using gasoline until uh, somewhere approaching 2050, at least some of them. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. And then another policy that we've been um, advocating for is called a zero emission vehicle standard. Now that is a requirement that automakers ensure a minimum percentage of all of their vehicle sales each year are electric. Now you kind of anticipated my next question. What you announced this month is meant to get Canada to just a smidge over 30% of emissions cuts 
by 2030, based on your most conservative estimates. And I know you're, you're hoping to get further than that. But I guess the next thing is, what comes after that? Why not announce a national zero emission vehicle standard to ban the sale of gasoline-fueled vehicles after 2030? Well, there are countries in the world that have put that kind of a ban in place, although most of them are a little later than 2030. Um, and certainly, I wouldn't rule um, both a, a, a zero emission vehicle supply mandate, which exists in a number of jurisdictions, including California, where you're requiring automakers to have a certain proportion of zero emission vehicles available for sale. I wouldn't rule that off the table by any stretch. And I wouldn't necessarily rule a ban out, out, out off the table. But you know, this is one of the opportunities that the election of, uh, of President-elect Biden opens up for Canada. We have a very integrated uh, auto market. Parts go back and forth between the two countries all the time. Um, this is an opportunity to work together on a North American solution with respect to how we're going to, uh, to phase out the use of internal combustion engines. And so that is a topic that we are eagerly uh, looking forward to engaging with, uh, with John Kerry, um, who uh, President-elect Biden has appointed to... Uh, to deal with a lot of the international climate issues. And uh, yeah, that's a very important one. I want to come back to something you and I have discussed before, <laughs> including the last time we chatted, and that is the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Future climate actions could reduce the use of oil in Canada. It could also reduce the oil that's exported. So what these uh, um, actions could have on the profitability of one single pipeline. The Parliamentary Budget Office recently released a report on it saying any action on climate change risks making it non-profitable. What do you say to that? Well, I, I have great respect for the Parliamentary Budget Office and, and for the folks that work there. Um, and, and I think that they, they, do, they do yeoman service in terms of providing an external perspective on lots of issues. We have always argued that the Trans Mountain Pipeline is part of a transition. It is about ensuring that Canada can get full value for its resources during a time where we continue to use oil. And that uh, that means avoiding the discount in the United States, opening up access to other markets during that transition. That continues to be our view. The taxes associated with that pipeline are going to be reinvested in uh, accelerating the transition going forward. With respect to the point about unprofitability of the pipeline, I mean, I do think the PBO slightly misses the point, which is, you know, the, um, the pipeline itself is for export. It's not for domestic use, other than a small portion of the existing pipeline that already is already there. And so domestic climate action was not going to have any impact on, on the Trans Mountain Pipeline. That being said, certainly international climate action and accelerating international climate action could. And that's something, obviously, we're going to be, you know, need to be sensitive to as we go forward. But I would just say that over the next number of decades, as, as we've just discussed, as we transition to zero emission transportation, there will can be a continued use of, uh, of, of gasoline and diesel fuel. And, uh, and Canada should be able to extract value for its resources, which it can invest in facilitating the kind of energy transition that we will be going through. The report isn't just considering domestic policies on climate change. It does explicitly consider global policies that could affect demand for oil and gas. Um, along with that, it points out that if domestic regulations cause an increase in the costs of fossil fuel producers, it could make their products more expensive and therefore not as attractive to global buyers and investors. 
Well, I, I would say that um, we have focused very much with respect to things like the price on pollution in trying to ensure that we are not creating um, export barriers for trade-exposed companies. But certainly, you know, as we move forward, um, we will see increasing climate action domestically and, and certainly we will be encouraging increasing climate action uh, internationally. Um, our view is that uh, the pipeline still makes sense as a transitional mechanism to ensure that we are extracting full value for Canadian resources during a time where hydrocarbons are still going to be used. That hasn't changed. But one of the other challenges that's emerged this year is the rising number of banks and pension funds and investment houses that are pulling away from fossil fuels more generally and the oil sands in Alberta in particular. How prudent is it in, in the long term to be invested in an infrastructure project as big as this pipeline, given that the, the investors seem to be running away from it? Well, I, I do think that it's a very important movement that you're seeing happening internationally in terms of international capital increasingly um, focusing on investments through a climate lens. And, and that will have implications for all of us. And it certainly will have implications for the energy sector in Canada. And what that should be telling all of us is we need to be rapidly decarbonizing. Um, and that includes all of our sectors. We need to be offering the lowest uh, carbon content goods and services. That includes, in the, in the next number of decades, oil and gas that, that exist. But the pipeline then becomes a white elephant in that context, doesn't it? Over the course of, of the, the next couple of decades, we, there are still going to be applications where oil and gas are utilized. And in that context, we need to ensure that we are reducing the carbon content of that through things like the clean fuel standard and a range of other things. Um, but we need to ensure that Canada is, is also extracting value such that it can fund the transition to a, an economy that is going to look quite different. And, and that is entirely consistent. There is a nod from your government to the idea of imposing tariffs on imports from higher emitting countries, such as the EU is doing, but it stops short of moving ahead on it. Why? Well, the, the idea is called a border carbon adjustment. Um, and, uh, and the idea is an interesting one. Uh, Europe is uh, ahead of everybody on this. They've been talking about it for some time. They are trying to develop um, a system to implement border carbon adjustments. It is very complicated, as they have found in trying to implement it. But the idea is, is a very interesting one. Um, we would obviously need to do that in lockstep with the Americans, um, just given the integrated nature of our economy. And, uh, and certainly the election of, uh, of President-elect Biden uh, opens up that opportunity. But one thing it will require in the United States is, is that President-elect Biden put in place a price on pollution. And so that is another conversation that we are going to be engaging with uh, John Kerry and with uh, the president once he is sworn into office. But it is certainly something that we are very interested in. It is not only a way in which to ensure that, that you are um, providing um, protection with respect to uh, to carbon content uh, come, of goods coming from outside, but I see it actually as a an enabler to incent stronger climate action on the part of some countries where they have not yet done that. Yes, it's uh, it's been a, a good career for me. I actually uh, finished high school, and then I was able to get on the Whitewood coal mine when I first graduated from school and lucky enough that I've had a well-paying job for uh, 33 years with no interruptions and now my opportunity to go back at 51 and find a job when you've got young people vying for those same jobs is zero to none I would imagine. The push to net zero requires the so-called just transition and that's legislation that your government is committed to. Where is it 
you've been busy the last few weeks, but I haven't seen that yet. Where is it and what will it be on the ground? Well, we, we've done, we did a fair bit of work on, on just transition uh, in the context of the accelerated phase out of coal. Um, eventually, there was a, a fair amount of money that was dedicated to ensure that there were transitional supports for workers where coal facilities were going to be phased out. We had committed to a broader conversation around the just transition. That work is ongoing. And we recognize whether you call it just transition or you call it uh, appropriate skills uh, and training supports in the context of an economy that is going to be changing. That is something that we absolutely need to be doing. Minister, a few days ago, I watched you in a meeting via Zoom with a group of young people who expressed their very passionate concerns about climate change, including the ownership of the pipeline. Uh, You told them that you're forming an advisory council of young people with the government's firm stance of supporting oil and gas. How can they be assured you will really act on their advice? Well, clearly, clearly, uh, ministers of the crown need to be engaging with uh, with stakeholders across the piece, um, and and that means you know we need to hear from industry and environmental organizations, um, and academics, and a whole range of things. But I think one of the voices that that often people miss because they are not so um, engaged in the formal institutional processes is youth. Um, and so one of the things that I said, and, and I think I said I hadn't said this publicly before, so I'm Gets not out sure now. if I'm actually making this <laughs> announcement uh, by, a, by, a, by a podcast, uh, which wasn't actually my intent, but is that we would be uh, standing up an advisory group, uh, youth group, that would provide advice to me. Um, I think it's entirely appropriate and ensures that youth voices will be heard in the context of the work that I need to do, and, and, and part of that work is trying to reconcile the different perspectives that are generated by different stakeholders, different regions. Um, and so I look forward to those conversations with young people. I mean, at the end of the day, it is young people who are going to have to live with either action or inaction on the part of governments around the world with respect to climate change. It is they that are going to inherit uh, the economy that we either choose to build or we put our head in the sand and do not. Um, and And so... I think it's entirely appropriate that they engage this conversation. It was also interesting to, to watch you urge young people to, to try to persuade older generations of the need to confront climate change now. Um, why do you hope they will do that um, when you haven't been able to do that so far yourself? Some people, some people in older generations, not all. So, I would say some people in older generations. I think if you look at the public opinion polling, um, increasingly uh, over the past number of years, people have come to the view that climate is a challenge. And the interesting thing is that that needs to be addressed. And, and the interesting thing is in the last few years, what you've seen is people are coming to the view that addressing climate change will be good for the economy. That's a new thing. And I think that's a very important thing. It is, in my mind, absolutely true. Um, but it is very important. But what I what I said to, uh, to to the youth when I was speaking to them is there's no stronger ambassador for climate action in convincing older generations who may not have to live with the significant impacts of climate change, just given that we probably won't be here when some of that happens, um, that uh, there is no greater ambassador than young people talking not only to their parents and grandparents, but talking to their aunts and uncles, talking to their neighbors, uh, their parents' neighbors, their parents' friends about why it's so important from their perspective that, uh, that their governments um, take strong action to address the climate issue. If all goes according to plan, Minister, Canada will achieve for the first time its international commitments on climate change, but, but it will require consultation on policy and innovation from the private sector. So 
I also want you to look ahead. We've been looking back a lot. What can we expect to happen next in 2021? Well, there are elements of the plan that we will be implementing right away. There are some of the regulatory measures and the price on pollution where we need to go through uh, some discussions with provinces and territories. We have only 10 years left before 2030. And so we don't have a lot of time to waste. We need to actually get on with action. And so I think the implementation of all of this is going to be a, a key part of that. Minister, I thank you very much for your time and I wish you happy holidays. All right. Thank you. And to you as well. Well, that does it for this week. Thanks to associate producer Jennifer Van Evra, producers Molly Siegel and Lisa Johnson. Our technician is Matthias Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Have a happy holiday and thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.